Just a minute ago, we sang this song about Palm Sunday, and today is Palm Sunday, this day in the church year when we remember Jesus entered into Jerusalem. We're not going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about what happened a little bit later in the week. I want us to think about Jesus' death on the cross as John tells it. And it's one way to think about the cross. One of the things we discover as we study the scriptures, we read the Bible more and more, there are many different ways to understand what Jesus did on the cross. Many different images, different metaphors that are used. We have four stories of the life of Jesus, four gospels, really one gospel told by four different people, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each of them tell it a little bit differently. You hear John and There's certain things that he includes, certain things he excludes. If you were to read the story in Luke, you'd hear it a little bit differently. Matthew would tell it a little bit differently. doesn't mean that they are different stories or that one of them is wrong. It's just the way it is, just the same as if all of us experienced church today and then we were to go out for lunch afterwards and tell what happened, we'd all tell it a little bit differently. We'd highlight certain things, certain things that maybe stood out to us, maybe things that connected. And that's what John does. He takes themes that have been going through his gospel. And we've been talking through the gospel of John for about 13 weeks now, looking at this story and there are themes that he follows along the way. And we're going to pick up a couple of those along the way. But we're going to set the stage and it sets the stage, begins with Palm Sunday, this Sunday where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. So Jesus has been doing his ministry, been serving people, been healing, been doing miracles, but he's been talking all along about the hour, this time where he will give his life for the world. And on Palm Sunday, he enters into Jerusalem and the crowds are there and they're waving the palm branches. And in the midst of that, if you were to read in chapter 12 of John, he talks about that. And he talks about laying down his life. He talks about being lifted up. And as John tells the story, he tells us that this happened six days before Passover. And that theme of Passover, this idea of Passover is going to be a key one we're going to be looking at today because it sets the stage, it sets the story. It's one of the ways that John tells it a little bit differently. He talks a lot about Passover and Passover is this significant event for the people of God, for the Jewish people, for the people of Israel. This time when they look back in history to the story told in the book of Exodus. This whole story when they were in slavery and God comes and with mighty acts of power delivers them out. He he crushes the powers of evil. He leads them through the waters and then he takes them out into the wilderness and he makes a covenant with them. And then he also gives them instructions for building a tabernacle, a temple, the sign of his presence with them as they go through the desert. All these things are in their mind and so Jesus is setting this up, or John is setting this up We kind of get this entrance, it's Passover, and then the next time we hear anything is in chapter 13 where we discover Jesus is having a meal with his disciples, and it's the night before Passover. So chapters 13 through 17 are this long introduction to this meal, but more importantly, the things that Jesus shares, and we've talked about these for about the last three or four weeks. Jesus washing his disciples' feet, reminding them of the way he will cleanse them and do them. Reminder of the coming of the Spirit, reminder that one of them will betray him that one of them will deny him. All the challenges that they will face. And the meal looks forward to these things, but we're going to pick it up in chapter 18 to kind of set the stage for what's going on. And so chapter 18 begins, Jesus goes out after he's finished praying and he goes out to the valley there. 
And while he's there in the garden, Judas, that's the bad guy, the one who betrays him, comes out along leading this detachment of soldiers, along with religious leaders and stuff, and they come to him. And this is Jesus' response. He says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? And this is one of the themes that John plays with is, Jesus is not surprised by these events. Sometimes we want to think that maybe in the story, Jesus doesn't know what's going on, that circumstances overwhelmed him, that all sorts of things happen. But all through the story, we see this again and again, where Jesus knows what's going to happen. He predicts what's going to happen. He's in control of this situation. That's important because Jesus didn't get dragged to the cross of it, like by the powers of evil and think like, oh, I don't know, what am I going to do? Jesus had his mind fixed on this, and this was part of God's plan, and he went there, and he was in control of what's going on. When they ask him who he is, he admits who he is. He could have lied about that. He could have done something. He tells them to let the disciples go, and they let the disciples go. And then there's a trial. Well, sort of a trial. The religious leaders take him, and they take him first to the high priest, and we hear about Peter's denial and all these Events go on, and then they take him to Pilate, who's the Roman governor. And it says in John 18, 28, Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. And so here again, John reminding us again and again, it's the Passover. It's the Passover. And you think, okay, John, we get it. It's Passover. We know what's going on. Why bring him to Pilate? Because they want Jesus dead. And they know they can't do it on their own, so they bring him. And so there's this long discussion between Pilate and Jesus about being king. And if you wanted to look at themes in John, that's another one you could consider is Jesus as the king. But again, Jesus is in control. He talks about, you have no power over me. And then once again, John 19, 14. It was day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. So we get the idea that John thinks it's important that it's the Passover. I mean, why, to my mind, why would he keep saying it time after time? He keeps reminding us, well, it's the Passover. It's the Passover. It was time for the Passover. It was these things going on. And it says it was the day of preparation. So one of the things that they did on the Passover, one of the stories of that exodus of the people of God coming out of Israel, or coming out of Egypt, was that they sacrifice a lamb, and then they took the blood of that lamb, and they put it across their doorposts, and that was a sign for the angel of death, the angel of destruction, to pass over their house to avoid that house. And so they lived this out, and so part of the Passover preparation each year was to sacrifice lambs. Now imagine Thousands and thousands of people coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. When you're getting ready a meal for guests, do you start in advance preparation? Or do you wait till they walk in the door and start pulling the things out of the fridge? And so when they're getting the lambs ready, so it's a very good chance that on noon of that Passover day when Jesus is that out in the rest of Jerusalem, that's exactly what they're doing. They're sacrificing the lambs, getting them ready for this Passover. And the story goes on, and we heard 
as Jim read it earlier, that there's these two men crucified with him, and there's this um, division of the clothes, and Jesus to his mother, and this other disciple, and he's creating a new family here. But I want to focus on just a couple verses here to help us draw together, and that's verse 28 through 30. And it says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed down his head and gave up his spirit. And so there's these connections here going on where Jesus is saying, this is it. Nothing, there's no turning back from it. Now that knowing that everything had been finished, well, he hadn't died yet, but there was nothing going to stop him at this point. He was on this roll to it. And again, we get connections with Passover. You think, well, John didn't mention Passover there, but he gives us a little detail. He says, there was a jar of vinegar and they soaked a sponge in and put the stalk, put the sponge on a stalk of what? That's the plan. Well, that's kind of a strange thing. Well, except if you go back to the book of Exodus which is the story of the Passover and the instructions that God gives His people for the Passover. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out at the door of your house until morning. Remember I told you that the, one of the things they did at Passover was take this blood and put it on the doorpost. Well, they didn't do it with their hands. They did it with the branch of a hyssop. And so when Jesus, when, when John talks about a hyssop branch, he's drawing it to the same thing. Or John 19.31. You're going to get tired of hearing about the Passover in just a minute here. But it says, next verse. Now it was the day of preparation. And the next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So they're saying, oh, we need to make sure that the legs will break their legs. Why? Because when, when someone dies on a, was crucified on a cross, what kills them is asphyxiation. They're not able to breathe. They're nailed to a cross and they're hanging up and down. Well, when your legs aren't broken, you can kind of lift yourself up every once in a while and catch a breath. Once your legs are broken, you're dangling by your arms and it's much harder to breathe. So oftentimes if they wanted to hurry along the execution, the Romans usually didn't want to hurry it along. They wanted to make the people suffer. But in this case, the Jews didn't want them up on the crosses during Passover, so they had their legs broken. But it tells us that Jesus' leg, Jesus had already did, and his legs aren't broken, which, Exodus 12, 46, it must be eaten inside the house again, the Passover. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. And so once again, John is calling together all these images, saying, oh, here's another thing. Jesus, like the Passover lamb, goes without any broken bones. So there's these connections between Passover and Jesus' death. There's the overthrow of the dark powers that enslave. They're setting people free. They're free to worship. Because one of the key things about Exodus, we think of Exodus simply as a story about the people being set free of slavery. But they're set free for a purpose, to go out into the wilderness and to worship. If you were to go back and read the book of Exodus, the first half is all this with God's display of power and the plagues and going through the Red Sea. And then there's a whole bunch of stuff after that. Anybody remember what happens after they come to Mount Sinai? 
There's a whole bunch of instructions for doing something. And the whole bunch of instructions are building the tabernacle. 14 chapters in the book of Exodus about building the tabernacle. Seven chapters of instruction, and then seven chapters basically repeating that, saying, and they did exactly what the instruction said. One of the few times the Israelites seem to follow instructions, I think. One of the few. One of the examples in the Bible where God gives instructions and they actually do it. So they go out and they give. So what's the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the presence of God with them. It's this intersection of heaven and earth. It's the hot spot. It's the place where heaven and earth meet, where God's space and people's space meet, and God is there. And so they build this tabernacle, this mobile tent, this presence of God with them. That's part of the Exodus story. It's a key part of it. It's not simply getting out of slavery. It's getting out of slavery so they can worship, getting out of slavery so they can be in the presence of God, so they can build the tabernacle, which John has told us, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. If you can think back 13 weeks till when we started this series, if any of you were here, this phrase, made His dwelling, we could also translate as tabernacled or pitched His tent. And so Jesus is described as the tabernacle, we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Father. Or in John chapter 2, Jesus is having a dispute with the people and He says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will build it again, raise it again in three days. And John goes on and tells us He's talking about Himself. So Jesus has talked about Himself as the temple, the replacement for it, as the, the new tabernacle. And so all these things come together. The day of preparation the lamb, the unbroken legs, the hyssop branch, Jesus as the new temple, all come to connect the cross with Passover. Now, it's not the only image the Bible uses. If we read our Bible, there's lots of different images for the cross. There's sin punished and sinners forgiven. There's death destroyed. There's the enemies reconciled to each other. There's all creation reconciled. But this is one that John uses. It's not the only one John even uses. He talks about giving and life and glory. But I want us to think about this one in Passover, connected to Passover, and especially this idea of when the people are brought out of slavery, that's freedom. And John, Jesus has talked about it already in John's gospel, chapter 8. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free... You will be free indeed. And so what's he talking about? He's saying that Jesus, one of the things that he does is he sets us free from the power of sin. Sets us free. And so this image of Passover that John has been drawing on all along is to help us get that in our head. That part of what Jesus does on the cross is to set us free from the power of sin. Now we have different ideas of what freedom means. Oftentimes we think of freedom as simply being able to do what we want, right? We're coming close to the end of the school year. And kids are getting excited. Teachers are getting excited. Why? Freedom! Freedom meaning what? I'm free from all these restrictions. I'm free. I can do what I want, right? I can sit all day and watch videos. I can play on my Xbox, or I can go run around, or I can ride my bike, or I can run in the woods, I can play baseball, I can do whatever I want, I'm free. And that's oftentimes our idea of freedom, but freedom isn't simply doing what we want. Freedom, as the Bible describes it, is the ability to do what God wants, and to be who God wants. 
And freedom is a current reality, something we're invited to live into. And I want us to think about it. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. Um, how many of you have read The Chronicles of Narnia? Familiar with it. So Chronicles of Narnia is this um, story of, there's a long series of stories, and at the center of it is a, a character named Aslan, a lion who represents a Christ figure, and there's these children that come and go in this magical land of Narnia, and they're experiencing what it's like. And the final book is called The Last Battle. And in it, I think there's a great picture of the kind of freedom that John is describing here, that the Bible is describing here. And so, one of the characters, or some of the characters in the Bible are, or in the Bible, in the Chronicles of Narnia, there are no dwarves in the Bible, but there are dwarves, there are dwarves in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. So, these dwarves in the Chronicles of Narnia, near the end, the last battle, kind of this picture of God making all, three, all things new, or in this case, Aslan making all things new. There are these dwarves, and they end up in a stable. And these dwarves are in the stable, and they're in there, and they're going on. And it says, Aslan says, I will show you both what I can do and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarves and gave a low growl. Low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarves said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared. Dwarves' knees, pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand, but it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon every dwarf began suspecting that every dwarf had done something, had, had something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. But here's the line I want you to pay attention to. So here's this scene. These dwarves are here, and they have everything they want. They have this incredible meal, but they see something different. They're refusing to accept what Aslan has done. And Aslan goes on. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds, yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. But come, children, I have other work to do. And so it's this picture of freedom in which it's saying we have the freedom already, but sometimes we behave like the dwarves. We refuse to see it. We refuse to acknowledge it. And so we say, well, wait a minute. Jesus set me free from sin, and so we're going to think about what that looks like a little bit more. And how do we do that? How do we not end up like these dwarves? One is we acknowledge reality. You know, we're honest and we confess our sins. We live in His Spirit, and we rely on Jesus alone. So when we're talking about what freedom looks like, it begins with that. It begins with acknowledging that we are sinners, and it begins with 
Acknowledging that we can only do it through Christ and Christ alone. We're going to come back to that. But what is freedom? A couple of things we can think about. Freedom is being set free from our past. Many of us struggle because things in our past, sometimes things we've done, sometimes things that have been done to us. And what John is portraying is one of the things Jesus has done is set us free from the past. He's also set us free to become what we want. We're also free to serve others. We're free from the law and this cycle of trying harder. Sometimes as Christians, we get caught in this cycle. We realize we're not doing all that we're supposed to do. We realize we miss the mark sometimes. And so usually what we do is we just try a little bit harder. I mean, you think about, we learn that lesson from the time we grow up. A child learning to ride a bike. They're struggling to ride the bike. Well, you know, you just got to try a little bit harder. Try it again. Just do it again. Learning how to sew, learning how to throw a baseball, whatever it is. And same with work. We, grow, we go to work and we're learning a new skill. We're learning how to do this new program or operate this new piece of machinery. And we realize, well, we didn't do it right the first time. So what are we, what are we told? Well, try again. Which works for a lot of things. But we transfer that over sometimes into our spiritual life. And we struggle and we have a, maybe a habit of not always telling the truth. And we realize we have this habit. We have this habit of kind of putting on a different front for people because we're worried about it. And so we say, well, I'm going to try a little bit harder. I'm going to do better. I'm not going to lie next time. Sometimes that works, but usually it doesn't. Or maybe it works for a little while, and then we go back to those old patterns. And so freedom that Jesus offers is the freedom to break free of that cycle. That cycle of, I just got to do better. I got to do better because what's that cycle look like? We'll use lying as the example. I lie. I say, well, I got to do better. I'm going to try harder. And then I lie again. Well, I'm going to try better, try harder. And then after a while, it gets kind of depressing, doesn't it? It can get discouraging. It can get hard because all of a sudden we fall into this habit of like, oh, I'm so terrible. I'm in a circle of condemnation. And instead of moving upward, and growing in Christ, we get farther down. And so when John talks about freedom here, and Jesus talks about the one who puts his faith in the Son will be free indeed, it's free from that circle of condemnation. And when we're truly free, we trust and love and obey God through Christ in the Spirit. We love and serve. We live before God knowing forgiveness and growing in holiness and love. That's the kind of freedom he's talking about. This freedom to do that, to say, I don't have to do it all myself. I don't have to try and do all these things on my own. So we can say, well, if we're free from sin, if we're free from the power of sin, do we stop sinning? Nope. Sorry. But we're freed from the obligation to serve that old master. You see, that's what Jesus talked about back in chapter 8. He's like, we're slaves to sin. In other words, we're obliged to do that. But what Jesus does is sets us free from that obligation. We're no longer obliged. So a couple of illustrations may serve for that. I've read this one a couple of times. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'll use it. That picture a baby elephant, and the baby elephant sometimes can be staked down. And they put a, a chain around the baby elephant's leg, and they put a stake in the ground. Well, when it's a baby elephant, it can't pull that stake up. But the elephant grows. and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Well, when the elephant is a full-size adult, they could easily pull the stake out of the ground. But it's learned, it's born into its head that it's not free anymore. And so it stays attached. Or maybe the example of those little electric fences that you use for dogs. You put the little, bury the, bury the wire around your property there and you put the little thing on it around the dog's neck and when the dog crosses the line, what happens? The dog gets a shock, right? Well, what oftentimes, I've been told, never had this myself, don't know, but the dogs, after a while, you can take the collar off because they've learned that there's a line there and if they cross the line, they get a shock. And it's the same way with sin is we're no longer obliged. We sometimes think that there's this line and we can't go any farther than that. What Jesus is saying is we've been set free from that, that our new master is God and not this thing. We can serve the old master. We can stay in that box. We can be like the dwarves. We can remain in this and say, oh, I, this is terrible. I can do this. Or we can begin to serve God and recognize that we have been set free. We can serve this new master and choose life. So this is what Jesus is getting at. And so as we enter this week, that's what I want us to remember, that we have been set free. And here's the thing. Sometimes we read the story of Jesus. We read the story and kind of have it in our mind, well, Jesus died on the cross and then he passed off the ball to us and said, now it's all you. Go. Go do good stuff. And we forget that's not what Jesus said. It isn't Jesus saying, oh, well, you know, I did my part, now it's all up to you. Because Jesus continues with us. And in fact, none of it's up to us. Go back to that verse, chapter 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it is finished. He was talking in part about his own work, what he had been called to do. But he's also reminding us that the work of forgiveness is done, that he's done the work. It's not up to us to work harder and try and find approval with God. It's not up to us to work harder to break free of sin, that it's all been done. Or the image that John uses often is, it's been given. So that verse we know best from Gospel of John, for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. That he gave to us. And so the picture that I want us to think on this week is it has been given to us. Freedom has been given to us. Life has been given to us. Forgiveness has been given to us. And the call is to simply abide in that, to rest in that work. And even that picture of rest, when Jesus says, it is finished, another picture comes to mind of God on the days of creation. And he at the end, he finishes his work, and he sits down to rest, and it's a call for us to rest. And so what I want us to do, church, is to enter into this week and rest in what Jesus has done, to stop our striving, to stop our pushing, to stop, but to rest in his works, to recognize that nothing you do, we can read our Bible, we can pray, we can do all those things, and they draw us, they can be used by God to draw us closer to Him. But it's not any of those things that save us. We're saved by one thing, and that's the death of Jesus. And what Jesus calls us to do is to rest in that. 
And so as we enter in this week, let's remember those words of Jesus that it is finished and then rest in that and celebrate. Amen.